like those of you who remain to turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians, the fifth chapter. You may feel like we're departing from Romans, but actually we're not. Um, Galatians 5 is almost a parallel to what we've been studying in the book of Romans in chapter 6 and 7. Because Paul writes the letter to the Galatian church, the church in Galatia, because they were having trouble with legalism and trouble with the, uh, the law of Moses being in, enforced and in, uh, imposed upon them even uh, after they became, of course, they became believers. That's why they're a church. But there were those who wanted to insist that they keep the law. So Paul wrote this letter to deal with the whole question of legalism. And in verse 13 he says, For you were called, chapter 5, 13, You were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word in the statement, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, take care lest you be consumed by each other. Paul is quoting, among other things, the words of Jesus when Jesus was asked by the religious teachers, what is the greatest commandment? They were trying to trap him by getting him to sort of uh, pick out one over another and isolate one. And Jesus answered them very simply, and he said, the greatest commandment is this, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second one is very much like it. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. The whole law and all the commandments can be summarized in those two statements. Because if you love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, that takes care of all the other issues concerning the worship and adoration of God and reverence and respect and recognizing who He is. And if you love your neighbor as you love yourself, if you give the same attention and interest to one another as you uh, have in your own self, well, you're going to do those things which are always consistent with the Scriptures. Now, this morning as we come to the consideration of the law and the flesh and the Spirit, and how do we know when we're walking in the flesh, and how, how do we know when we're walking in the Spirit? <clears throat> I have been listening to the conversations about the church, around the church, for the last several weeks, as, as this whole subject has been discussed. And some of the questions that continue to arise and have come out of various of the small groups is, how do I know when I'm in the spirit or in the flesh when I'm doing good stuff? You know, people can pretty easily figure out when they're doing bad stuff. You know, if you're overtly sinning, you don't have to, you know, you don't have to spend a lot of time trying to analyze that. But if you're doing good stuff, if you're doing a work for the Lord, if you're engaged in some kind of ministry or ministry project, how do you know you're in the spirit versus being in the flesh? And the question that becomes an immediate sequel to that is is it possible to literally do the work of God in the flesh? Or is it impossible to do the work of God if you're in the flesh? Now, for those of you that are just joining us, we're not talking about flesh as in this body. We're talking about flesh as in the natural way that human beings think and operate, the normal method of operation, the carnal nature that part of humanity, apart from Jesus Christ, that is not filled and controlled by His Spirit. The normal, everyday way that human beings act and react. One of the things that I want to point out as we get started is that many people make a distinction in their mind. They make a division between spiritual work and secular work. They make a division saying, 
you know, if, if I'm teaching a Bible class or if I am playing music in the church or if I am uh, preparing for an event in the church or I'm leading a ministry, that's spiritual work. But when I go to my job, that's secular work. Or when I go to buy groceries, that's just kind of normal life. You know, I'm just living my life. That's just everybody has to do that. And that's kind of secular stuff. So what we do here at church is spiritual stuff. And what we do out there the rest of our week is secular stuff. It's just ordinary stuff. And I want to hasten to remind you this morning, to say to you this morning, that for the Spirit-led Christian, the Christian who is walking in the Spirit and led by the Spirit, there is no division. There is no distinction between what is spiritual and what is secular. Paul says, let everything you do, that you do it for the glory of God. Everything you do. Let your mind wander for a minute. Take that one as far as you want to go. Let everything you do be done for the glory of God. Everything we do in our lives should be a spiritual activity because it's not the activity itself, it's the presence of God in the midst of it that makes the qualifying difference. And in the Old Testament, and part of this is a carryover from the Old Testament, and part of it is a carryover from the traditions of the church going back hundreds of years in making a false understanding. In the Old Testament, God gave to the Israelites a tabernacle, a tent, a place of meeting. And he told them how to make it, and he brought his spirit to rest upon it. And he said, this is my dwelling place, this is my house. And he made that separation. And they brought all the necessary components to assemble that tabernacle. And when all the pieces were assembled, they sanctified it unto God. They dedicated it and separated it for God. And God said, this is a holy place. And everything that touches this must be holy. And everything it touches must be holy because this is my house. This is where I live. And he did that in order to teach them about his character and about his holiness and about who he is in, in the midst of the world. But in the New Testament, Jesus makes it plain that the old shadows, the old images, the old pictures have passed away and now reality has come. And you remember in, in John when he made the statement to the Jews, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up again. And they looked around at Herod's temple with all these big massive stones and they said, this thing's been under construction for 40 years. You're going to restore it in three days? What are you, nuts? And John interprets that for us and says, Jesus was speaking not of that temple but of his body which would come out of the grave in three days. And when Jesus was resurrected, he said, Wait in Jerusalem until my spirit has come upon you, and he will fill you. And then you will go out and be my witnesses. And friends, the great difference is, is that all of that stuff in the Old Testament pointed to the reality of Christ, and our bodies have become his temple. This is now where he lives, in this house, the one I'm pointing to. And in your house, the body you live in, the Holy Spirit of God dwells there. That is the temple of God. <clears throat> and so you carry with you, wherever you go, you carry with you the presence of the living God. Everything you do should be sanctified by His presence. Everything you do is a holy, H-O-L-Y, a holy endeavor. Everything you do is spiritual. If it isn't, you shouldn't be doing it. Everything you do is spiritual. And whether you eat or drink, it's spiritual. 
Go buy groceries. You're, you're the temple of God in the grocery store. When you touch the beans on the shelf, they become spiritual. <clears throat> I'm taking that a little too far, but you, you, understand what, you understand my point. You are the dwelling place of God. So one of the things that we need to clear up right at the outset is, you, you don't just do spiritual stuff at church. You do spiritual stuff everywhere you go. And we're intended to be in the Spirit everywhere we go. We're intended to walk by the Spirit in every endeavor of life. There is never a time when we can just kind of lean on our natural instincts. <clears throat> Everything is done in the Spirit for the Spirit-filled Christian. So, as we consider the question, how do I know when I'm in the flesh or in the Spirit, <clears throat> the first thing <clears throat> that we want to recognize is you're, you ought always to be in the Spirit. In everything you do, you ought to be living in the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. Now, Paul says, when you're out and about, <laughs> when you're doing stuff, there are some practical things I can tell you that will kind of clue you in as to whether you're operating in the natural human ability realm or whether you're operating in the spiritually powerful realm. He says, for example, I say, verse 16, walk by the Spirit, you'll not carry out the desires of the flesh. For the flesh, the carnal nature, is at war with the Spirit, and the Spirit is against the flesh, for they are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. That's right out of Romans 7. That's the struggle. But here's the answer. But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Okay, so how do we know? Well, he says, when you're in the flesh, this is what it looks like. Immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, Enmity, strife, jealousy, outburst of anger, dispute, dissension, faction, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like this, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things, that is, those whose lifestyle is characterized this way, will not inherit the kingdom of God. This is the way the natural man lives. But if you're in the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. That's Romans chapter 6. This is already an accomplished fact. If you belong to Jesus Christ, you, you have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. In Jesus Christ, that's been taken care of. So he says, if we live by the Spirit... Verse 25, let us also walk by the Spirit. In other words, if you're living as a saved, redeemed person and the Holy Spirit of God is living inside of you, then your activity, your behavior, should be characteristic of one who is being led by the Spirit. You're walking by the Spirit. Let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. <clears throat> Brethren, even if a man is caught in a trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and thus fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he's something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one examine his own work, and then he will have reason for boasting in regard to himself alone, and not in regard to another. For each one shall bear his own load." I'm so glad that Paul put both of those sentences in the same paragraph. Bear one another's burdens, thus fulfill the law of Christ, verse 2 of chapter 6, and verse 5, each one shall bear his own load. They, they sound like contradictions, don't they? But they're not. What Paul is getting at is this. If in Romans, for example, we're not there yet. We may not be there until the next millennium, but anyway, it's in chapter 14. It's way out there. <clears throat> Paul says, who are you to judge another man's servant? To his own master he stands or falls, and stand he will, for the Lord is able to make him stand. 
He's talking about our personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ, and he says this, you must answer to God alone for your behavior. You must answer to God alone for your behavior. That's the point of each one will bear his own load. You must answer to God for your behavior. And if you think you're pulling it off pretty well, well, then I guess you have a reason to boast, but only in respect before God. If you can come to God and say, God, I'm doing a great job down here, have at it. That's almost what Paul's saying, but how many of you are willing to do that? Okay, I thought so. Um, you know, he's, he's saying to us, we stand before God, but he says when it comes to the body, to the assembly, he says you need to develop a great deal of empathy and compassion for one another. You need to bear one another's burdens. Because you know why? We're all in the same soup, friends. Every person in this room has a carnal nature. Every one of us. And when we get out of the Spirit, guess where we go? There is no other alternative. We only have one choice. You're either in the Spirit or you're in the flesh. You don't have another choice. So when you get out of the Spirit, you're in the flesh. We all have that uh, affliction. You can walk by the Spirit, and you're in the Spirit. If you're not walking by the Spirit, you're going to be in the flesh. And he says you all have that common affliction, and you all have that common potential to walk in the Spirit. You all can do that. But he says when you find somebody that's in the flesh, and they're caught in a trespass, and they're out of, out of whack, he says don't land on them with both feet. Be gentle, be gracious, be kind, be empathic, be sensitive. Go to them, love them, encourage them, help them to bear up under their trial and come back to life in the Spirit because every one of us could fail and every one of us faces trials. Every one of us needs to be sensitive to each other. In that way, we bear each other's burdens. Nobody here this morning can stand up on the chair and say, look at me, I'm better than anybody else in this room, I've got it all figured out, and I'm not going to make any more mistakes. If you do, chance that. <laughs> Pride comes before a fall and a haughty spirit before destruction, and you're already in trouble before you get down. We need to come to your aid quickly. <laughs> you're in for a hard fall. We need to be sensitive to one another. But Paul has given us some barometers, some indicators. He says, when you find yourself acting like this, you're in the flesh. When you find yourself acting like this, you're in the Spirit. So take a look at how you're doing and see what these deeds look like. Look at some of the words for you. I just go down the middle of the list again of the flesh, starting with enmity. Hostilities, strife is quarrels and tension. Jealousy is zeal and fury and, 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 and envy and jealousy over whatever. Outburst of anger. Literally the word is thumos, which means passion. It literally means passion. But negative passion. It's a very interesting Greek word. It means outburst, passion, rage, wrath, angry feelings, angry temper. Outburst of anger come from passion of a negative sort. Disputes, arguments, selfish ambition. Dissensions. This is a very interesting word, dissensions. It comes from the Greek word dikostasa. Di or dikostasa. We get dichotomy to a division. Dissension literally means to hold oneself aloof. You ever see people like that? Well, I just think I'll let them deal with this themselves. I'm just not going to play this game. You know, sometimes your withdrawal from engagement can be carnal. When you ought to be a part of the solution, and you just step back and fold your hands and say, I'm just going to let this 
I'm just going to let them deal with it. I'm not going to have anything to do with that. It literally means you're building a separation between yourself. Factions is the final act of overtly separating. I found here actually a, 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 de a declining spiral from outburst of anger to arguments over it, followed by holding oneself aloof, followed by actually overtly separating. I'm not having anything to do with you anymore. There's a, there's a complete break. Envy, jealous longing for what someone else has. And by the way, just to throw this in for kicks, the word carousing, that probably sounds like an ancient word to you if you're a younger generation person. Carousing. My mother used to say, they're out carousing about. And I used to think, what is carousing? You know, what does that mean? Well, actually, it literally means a village festival. That's interesting, a village festival. But think what goes on at village festivals. What's the one we have around here? I'm having a temporary stupid attack. Fiesta days. There you go. What do people do at fiesta days? Oh, they party hardy. That's carousing. That's carousing. Getting dumb, sloppy drunk and not having a clue what you're doing and carrying on in the streets. Eh, that's the natural man. That's the flesh carousing. Oh, very interesting. Okay, so what's that got to do with anything? Paul says, here's the barometer. Here's how you apply the, the question. How are you acting in the midst of it? Now, let me give you some practical uh, guidelines, beginning with uh, the outline. If you have the outline, if you don't, it's on the back table. Pick it up later. Um, number one, first point, ask yourself, what is the source or origin of the activity or project I'm concerned about? Where'd this come from? Where'd this come from? Remember what I said about making a division between secular and spiritual? And there is no secular in the life of a committed believer. There isn't. So if all you're doing is the next logical thing, the next obvious thing, well, this just makes sense. Of course I ought to do this. You may be taking steps away from the will of God. And one day you may wake up and say, how did I get here? I feel so far out of the will of God. Well, you were doing the next logical thing. You know what the problem with that is? There is a way that seems right to a man, Proverbs 16.25. There is a way that seems right to a man, but the end of it is death. And Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, most all of you know this one. Do not lean on your own understanding, but in all your ways. How much does that include? Going to work? Cleaning house? Going to your neighborhood block party? Coming to church? In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. Do not lean on your own understanding. People who lean on their own understanding are going to be in the flesh, in the carnal nature. It's just because it's natural. And that's what the scripture calls the natural man. The one who does what he thinks is logically the next step. But the scripture warns us, saying, you're not that smart. <laughs> you just think you are, but you're not that clever. You're going to mess up. In all your ways acknowledge me. I will direct your steps. Where did this thing come from? How did I get here in the first place? Was this just my plan, or did this come from God? The believer who is walking in the Spirit will have a life that is bathed in prayer. Do you seek God about your work? Do you seek Him about your family? Do you seek Him about your activities? Do you pray over? I mean, when you get an invitation to go to the neighborhood block party, do you pray over that? You should. 
You're, you're the ambassador of Jesus Christ. It, it's not, oh, that's not church. So I, don't, I just go to the party. I don't have to think about that. No, you are the ambassador of Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit dwells in you. You're his representative. Do, do you pray over it? You may not have any idea what you will miss if you just simply show up without praying about it. God may have someone he wants you to talk to and he wants to sensitize you and put you on the alert. He may have some other work for you. He may not want you to go at all. There may be something else you ought to be doing. George Mueller wrote in the margin of his Bible, besides Psalm 37, I forget the exact verse, but it's about halfway through Psalm 37, the scripture says, The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and though he stumble, he will not be hurled headlong, for the Lord upholds him with his hand. And George Mueller wrote beside the steps of a good man, he said, And the stops. Sometimes in prayer, God says, Stop. And you need to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit. So is your life a life that is bathed in prayer? Or are you just doing the next thing on the agenda? Have you left room for God to interrupt your routine? Are you open to Him? Are you open to Him? You know, I used to love to to talk to Dean Leonard when he was uh, out. I still love to talk to Dean Leonard. But when he was out selling, um, it was just kind of fun to get him to tell stories of his day in sales because he said, you know, I'd kind of get up in the morning and I'd say, Lord, where do you want me to go? And he said, I might have had in mind to go, you know, over toward Glencoe and, and I get this urge that I should go toward Rockford. And so he said, I, you know, I head toward Rockford. And he said, I'd, I'd get in the Rockford area and I'd say, now, Lord, what do you want? And, and some doctor's name will come to mind. He sold orthopedic supplies. So he said, you know, I'd go there and and uh, it would be just the right timing, and the guy needed exactly what I had, and, and he said it would just work out, and he said I'd leave that appointment and just kind of say, okay, now what, Lord? And he'd say I'd get another doctor that would come to mind, I'd go over and see him, and then sometimes I'd get a, an urge to turn down a certain street, and I'd be headed down that street, and I'd remember there's so-and-so over here I hadn't seen in a long time, and, and I'd stop in and they would buy stuff. And Dean always ended up selling. He was always a top salesman. And sometimes, <laughs> sometimes at the company meetings, people would come up to him, younger salesmen, and say, what's your secret? What's your plan? How do you do this? And, you know, I mean, how do you prospect? How do you develop your routes? He said, uh, it's, it's really hard to explain. Because I just ask God what to do, and I do what he tells me. That's kind of tough for someone that doesn't even know Jesus. To understand, it doesn't come out very well, but God will lead you, direct you, guide you. Do you want to do the will of God more than anything else in your life? John 7, 17, if you look at the context of this, Jesus is challenging his accusers in that passage. But in the midst of that challenge, he makes this statement which we can legitimately extract as a general principle. John 7, 17. I've written it in your notes, but you can also look it up. Jesus said, if any man wills to do God's will, he will know the teaching, whether it is from myself or from God. And the general principle there is this. If you want to do the will of God, he will will show it to you. If that's what you want more than anything in your life, God will show it to you. You know, people have written all kind of books over the years how to find the will of God, like the will of God was lost somewhere, and you've got to, it's like an Easter egg hunt, you've got to go figure it out. God is more interested in you doing his will than you are. He is more concerned that you know his will than, than, than most of us are. He wants to reveal his will. But you know what? Jesus is the same one who said, don't cast your pearls before swine. He was talking to his disciples on the topic of preaching and saying, don't hang out and spend a lot of time with people that don't want to hear what you have to say. Well, if, if Jesus said that to his disciples, how do you think God is going to react to people who say, 
gee, Lord, I'd like to know your will. And if I like it, I'll do it. Do you think he's going to tell them? No. He doesn't cast his pearls before swine. Don't be offended by that, but if if you just want to find out the will of God so you can make up your little mind as to whether you're going to follow it or not, God's not going to bother to tell you. A.W. Tozer wrote a series of devotionals collected under the title of a book that was called God Tells the Man Who Cares. If you want to know the will of God and you want the will of God more than anything and you're willing to do what he shows you, then he will reveal his will to you. You say, how will that happen? You know what? I don't know. But I, he, that's not my problem. That's his, he knows how to do that. He made you. Some people say, do you believe in dreams and visions? God can use dreams and visions. God can use a conversation with a friend. You can be having a conversation and boom, something comes out of the conversation. The friend doesn't even know what they were saying. You ask God a question. You're talking to, to, to Mary Jo over here and you're having a conversation and she says something and the Holy Spirit kind of highlights that and says, and, and you realize that's exactly the question I was asking God and there's the answer. I, and she didn't even know she was answering the question. You can be reading the scriptures and something leaps off the page. You can, you can be asking God for direction and a door opens in front of you that you didn't even know was there. All kinds of ways. God is not limited by a particular method, but if you want to do the will of God, He will show you the will of God. And if that's what you care about the most, God will tell you. So the first thing we have to do in analyzing Am I in the flesh or in the spirit? You you have to ask the question, the very basic question, is what I'm doing in the flesh or in the spirit? I mean, let's settle the issue of, of whether or not my activity is even under that umbrella. Did God guide me here, or did I just find my own way? And if you're sitting there saying this morning, man, I haven't asked those questions in like 10 years. I mean, I I don't even know where to start. I'm so far out of touch, I don't have a clue. You know, another little secret. When you go to God from that position this morning, it's not like you suddenly wake him up and he looks down and says, Oh, you're right. I haven't been paying attention to you for 10 years, but look at you. How'd you get so far off the plan? You know what? God knows exactly where you are. And if you want to get on the track back, all you have to do is say, God, I haven't been talking to you for a long time about what I should be doing, but I really need some direction, and I am willing to listen. I want to walk in the Spirit, and I want everything I do to be in the Spirit. So I'm just letting you know that right now. Tell me the next thing I need to do. God will show you. You didn't surprise him by being where you are. He knows our thoughts before we even think them. He knows every time you sit down, every time you rise. He knows everything about you. He knows where you are. Just turn it over right now, lock, stock, and barrel. God will take you back where you need to be. He will lead you back. You cannot get so far out of the will of God that you cannot get back to life in the Spirit. There's always a way home if you will let him have it. Then the second question I've suggested that you ask yourself is consider the effect that the work is having upon you. As you're doing whatever it is you're doing, some ministry in the church, some family situation, some job-related crisis or whatever, are you resting in the Lord in your work or are you filled with anxiety? The scripture says, be anxious for nothing. 
But in everything by prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which goes beyond comprehension, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Are you, are you anxious? Usually when we're filled with anxiety, we're trying to hang on to something or we're trying to make sure we accomplish something without any consideration as to whether it is God's purposes or plans. You know, it kind of goes like this. If this doesn't happen, I just don't know what I'll do. Life will just kind of cease to exist as I know it. If this doesn't happen, I, I have to have this. And, and you know, we're like... Hanging on for dear life. As hard as it is, and I'm, I'm preaching to the choir, and since there's not one behind me, I'll just, I'm preaching to me. All of us. We have to live our lives with open palms. You know, if you're so invested that God can't pry your fingers off, you know, and, and God's sitting there doing this thing with you, and, and it, if you're so invested that you can't let go, probably in the flesh. The thing may not be in the flesh, but you are. Because when you're in the Spirit, there is a freedom from anxiety. And when it comes, the Spirit-filled person goes right to God with it. The fleshly person gets a tighter grip. Are you in the flesh or in the spirit? Do you feel the need to coerce people to help you? Are, you? are you resorting to manipulation? Do you need to be in charge or feel in control? You know, that's an important question to ask. I pried my fingernail right off my finger. That's an important question to ask. Not the whole thing. I'm just a divot. <laughs> Don't want anybody worried up here. When we're in the flesh, we are deeply invested in our goals to the point that we've got to make people get on board with us. And we use all kinds of ways to do that. But you know what? The person who's walking in the Spirit knows that God is the one who's responsible. And if people join you, it's to their blessing and benefit. And if they don't, it's their loss but it's not your problem. People that are in the flesh really have an invested interest and they've got to control it. They've got to be in charge because if they're not in control, then the wheels are going to come off. And it's a totally different perspective when we're walking in the Spirit. Do you lack peace? Can you find solace, comfort, and encouragement in the Lord? Now, yeah, I found this morning at the 8 o'clock service, and I'm finding it here because it's like 13 minutes till noon and I've got to quit soon. The whole counsel of God comes into perspective here, and it's just hard to wrap this all up in one simple statement. Paul said about his experience to the Corinthians, I, I am distressed but not in despair. He said, I am concerned about you. I, I'm having birth pains all over again for the churches because I'm concerned that you're not going to follow through. That, that sounds like anxiety. I, and I'm not sure it's the same thing. But Jesus was in the garden on the night that he was betrayed. And the scripture says he was sweating and crying out to God and sweating as if it were drops of blood mixed with his sweat pouring out on the ground. That's pretty intense, okay? That's intense. But hear the prayer of Jesus. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. The whole point of that encounter was yielding to the Father. Okay, And sometimes we come with stuff that we're just deeply vested in, but we've got to come to the Father and say, not, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Does this look frightening to me? Yes. Am I going where I've never been? Yes. Is it daunting? Yes. But not my will. But yours be done. Are you 
exhibiting those signs of the flesh in the midst of your work? Do you have enmities rising up? Is there strife? Are there angry outbursts? Are you having arguments? Are you in division? Are you holding yourself aloof, saying, well, I've had enough of this, I think I'll just sit it out for a while? What do you see the, the effect of your work? If you see those signs, you're in the flesh. If you see love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, in the midst of all kinds of turmoil and frustration and opposition, you find the peace of God that goes beyond comprehension. You're walking in the Spirit. But if you're churning inside, and you're angry, and you're frustrated, and, and, and you're, 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 you're acting out, and you're wanting to fight, and, and you're wanting to separate, and you're wanting to argue over everything, Paul says, deeds of the flesh are evident. Check it out. Finally, consider the outcome of the effort. And I'll close with this, but consider the outcome. When we are abiding in Christ and living by the Holy Spirit, we naturally bear fruit. There is the mark of eternal value and treasures upon our life's work. You may not know you're doing it when you're doing it. It may only be in retrospect, but when you're walking in the Spirit, there is permanent outcome that comes from that. God ministers His life through you. And people's lives are touched and changed. God does not measure success the way man does. The natural man is interested in results, bottom line, measurable, outward success. God is more interested in method and process, not the doing but the being. He's more interested in obedience than in sacrifice. I want to finish by telling you a story from Numbers 20. I came in Friday morning to our staff meeting and Hector had prepared a devotional for us this week and it was from Numbers 20 and he shared this story from Moses and God just showed me how clearly it fit the message this morning and it answers a lot of questions. Remember I asked the question, can you do the genuine work of God in the flesh? Well, I'm going to suggest to you right now that not only can you do the work of God in the flesh, but God will actually bless his work when you're in the flesh. Not always, but many times. And it sometimes leads us to the false assumption that we were in the spirit when we weren't. Go back and look at the fruit. But here's the story, Numbers chapter 20. The sons of Israel, the, the whole congregation, came to the wilderness of Zin in the first month, and the people stayed at Kadesh. Now Miriam died there and was buried there. And there was no water for the congregation. This is the second time this has happened. Okay, not the first, but the second time. There's no water for the congregation. And they assembled themselves against Moses and Aaron. The people thus contended with Moses and spoke, saying, If only we had perished when our brothers perished. That was the ones that God killed for their rebellion. <laughs> if only we had died with all of them. Oh, that's a lovely thought. Why then have you brought the Lord's assembly to the wilderness for us and our beasts to die here? What's wrong with you, Moses? And why have you made us come up from Egypt to bring us to this wretched place? You know, last time I heard when they were in Egypt, they were crying about their problems. But now Egypt looks like, hey man, that's home. Let's go back. What'd you bring us out here for? We don't have any water. They haven't had water before and God met them. What's wrong with them? They've got short memories. So do we. This is not a place of grain or figs or vines or pomegranate. There's not even any water to drink, Moses. Moses and Aaron came in from the presence of the assembly to the doorway of the tent of meeting and fell on their faces. Great move. You know, when the whole congregation's ready to, to ride you out of town on the rail, string you up, going before God and falling on your face is a good thing to do. And that's what they did. And it says, The glory of the Lord appeared to them. 
God responded to their, to their plea. God help us, okay, here I am. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Take the rod and you and your brother Aaron assemble the congregation and speak to the rock before their eyes that it may yield its water. You shall thus bring forth water for them out of the rock and the congregation and their beasts to drink. In other words, take the rod, the symbol of your authority, stand before the people and go before this rock that was there and speak to it and say, give us water in the name of God. And water will come out of it. God had brought water out of a rock before when Moses struck it. And they had seen that. Now he says, go speak to this one. And so... Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly before the rock, and he said to them, Listen now, you rebels! Shall we bring forth water out of this rock for you? You know, I think I know what happened to Moses. He was all spiritual. He was spiritual until the moment he got them all together and he looked at them. <laughs> you know? And he just looked at them, and it all came up again. Ugh! I'm so frustrated with these people. I'm going to give them a piece of my mind. Listen up, you rebels. He was not in the spirit then. You ever have that happen? You go off and pray. I know, parents, I know you've done this. <laughs> You're ready to kill them, so you go pray. Good move. You go pray. You, you get it all straight before the Lord, and then you go back and you look at them. Oh, and it's all there again, you know. Time to go pray again. You know, we have this. I know that's what happened to Moses. He took one look at him, and it just went all over him. And he says, I... And he looks at this rock, and he raises his rod, and he smashes it twice. And does God bless his fleshly efforts? Yes, he does. And you know why? Because the people were thirsty. And God was not willing to punish the people because Moses got out of line. That's a big lesson, folks. God will many times bless your fleshly efforts at his work because he loves people. And he will not punish them by deprivation just because you're not in the Spirit. But don't make the false assumption that you did well. If you got all this fleshly stuff going on, you've still got a problem. And so, the water flowed, but the Lord said to Moses, because you have not believed me to treat me as holy and respect me in the sight of the sons of Israel, therefore you will not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. You know, I'm sure at that moment that Moses went, He's, he led these people. The promised land was the goal. And God said, Moses, you will never put foot in it. Say, so wasn't God being a little harsh? Wasn't he being hard on Moses I mean all he did was have an, an anger fit he threw a temper tantrum and hit the rock what's the big deal you do that once a week right what's the big deal it's interesting that God challenged Moses on this basis you did not believe me what didn't Moses believe he didn't believe that God would do what God said he would do, take care of the problem, if he just obeyed and spoke to the rock. Every problem we get into is a lack of faith, unbelief. We doubt that God can handle it. And why was that important? In the New Testament, Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are thirsty, and drink from me the fountain of living water. And out of your innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. How many times was Jesus struck? 
only once. He went to the cross one time. And after Calvary, everyone who would simply come and ask by faith could drink. Moses had no idea in that moment that God, who was carefully weaving a picture of his own Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the rock of our salvation, the source of the waters of life, that God was building a picture and that Jesus would be crucified and smitten once and ever after by speaking to the rock we could have life. And Moses in his anger destroyed that image because he couldn't see past the moment. And God who weaves eternity in his plan has the big picture. He's looking for people who will obey him. God does not measure success by numbers, attendance, cash flow, bottom line, profit and loss, how big the church got. God doesn't measure success that way. God measures success in simple terms of obedience. Did you do what I ask you to do? If you did, you're a total success in his book. And if you find in the midst of his work all these other things are churning up, you may be doing the work of God. You may be doing what he's asked you to do, but you're doing it in your strength. Because the deeds of the flesh do not arise when we're in the Spirit. I wish I could explain to you Jesus' outburst in the temple when he threw the money changers out. There are so many things I wish we could just talk about. We just don't have time because there, there's a time and place. But before you have a temper tantrum, why don't you sit down and braid a whip? That'll give you time to think it over. Give you time to pray about it. You know, if you have an angry outburst, you better make sure it's the Holy Spirit leading you to do that. And that it's coming from God. Sometimes it's necessary. But it needs to be in the Spirit. Where is it coming from? What is the source? Father, thank you for your word. Minister to us in the name of the Lord Jesus. Help us to see. And, and, and when we find that we're in the flesh, Lord, give us the wisdom by now not to try harder, but to come back and surrender and say, Oh God, I'm doing it. I give up. I surrender. Please do it through me by your power. In Jesus' name, amen.